Hi, my name is Andy Wildman. I uh, live now in Fort Worth, pastored Grace Bible Church in Dallas for 19 years, and nine years as the associate pastor and an elder before that. So, uh, And my younger daughter went to college with a bunch of Jeff and with Clayton and a lot of the folks that are here. But actually, I got to know them because uh, a young seminary grad said, a bunch of us meet, and, and we'd like for an old guy to come talk to us. And that's, I think, where I met Jeff. And you always look forward to those old guy meetings. I mean, it's something to really be excited about. Let's, let's pray together and we'll go from there. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that your word would speak to us by the power of your spirit and that this Christmas season we would catch anew in excitement about what the incarnation means. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For the three Sundays I'm with you, we're doing a thing what I call on birth narratives. In other words, long descriptions of significant births. Uh, when you hear the phrase birth narrative, it normally means the description of Jesus' birth in Matthew and Luke. But if you study the Old Testament, you find out there are certain people for whom there is a lengthy description of their birth uh, circumstances. And typically, there is a significant connection of those people when they grow up to Jesus himself. So it's, it's the story of babies. And we all love babies, right? I mean, uh, babies are magical. I, 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 um, I, I'm a little scared of babies. Uh, you know, when, as a guy, when I hold them, I'm afraid their head will fall off if I don't hold them right because it's kind of doing that thing. But, but, but they have this magical quality. A cousin of mine, um, my, uh, my mother's family is all from the beautiful city of Malakoff, Texas. And this cousin grew up there and went to um, the school where her dad was the superintendent, and and she was quite the something there, and then went on to A and M because apparently couldn't get in Texas, and then and then <laughs> got a really important finance job, and 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 we actually got to know her because her job brought her to Dallas, you know, and she got to where she'd come see us, and she worked well into her 30s as a professional woman and was struggling with, well, I love being a professional woman, but I want to get married, and, and went through some failed dating relationships, and then ends up online reconnecting with a guy that she went to high school with in, in beautiful East Texas, and they married. And I got to do the wedding on a pier over a stock tank outside of Malakoff. I mean, well, how, how colorful can that be? And, and, and they've moved to, they both have big jobs, and they live outside of D.C., and they moved up there. And lo and behold, she had a baby. And as near as I can tell, she feels like this may be the first baby ever born. You know, it's, you know how that first baby, it's this, no one could possibly have loved this the way I do. And no baby is as special as my baby is. And, and all of you should stop your lives and celebrate my baby. Um, and she is a cute baby. I got to tell you, she's, she's, she's pretty cute. Um, but the power of babies is kind of crazy. I mean, you just, I mean, when my wife gets around a baby, it's all she can do not to grab it. She just wants to hold it. I want to wait till it's big enough to kick a ball or something. You know, that's kind of where I am. But, but they're incredible. But with all their power, they're staggeringly weak. Uh, Julie was uh, one of the uh, principals of, at Covenant School for a number of years, and a, and, a, and a little girl came, and her mom had had a new baby brother. And um, she said, well, how do you like your new baby brother? And the little girl said, well, she's, he's good, but we have to feed him every day. 
you know, they're just so helpless. They do nothing for themselves. I mean, they don't even clean up their own beds. They, you have to feed them. You have to change them. You have to listen to them. I mean, babies are, are powerless. They, 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 don't, they don't get anything done around the house. I mean, they're just very weak and powerless. One of the things that's interesting, when you study Scripture, God loves to use babies as demonstrations of his power. It's a really unique thing that he does throughout the narrative scripture. I'm doing this series partially because it helps us gain that little bit of that big view of scripture, that bigger, uh, what theologians now call meta-narrative of scripture, that big description of how God works over time. So last week we looked at Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was promised the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. God said, I'm Abraham, you and Sarah are going to be the father and mother of a great nation. And then they got to be 190 years old each and, and had, had no children. And God said, okay, now I'm ready. I'm going to give you a child. And, and they gave him Isaac, uh, supernatural fulfillment, so that God used Isaac to fulfill that promise that God had made that the nation of Israel would come forth from Abraham. Amazing story. And then the catch-all is then when God says to uh, Abram when his son is older, I want you to take him and sacrifice him to me. Give him back. And it's a, a remarkable picture of what the father has done for us. He took his only son and gave them for us. It's, it's amazing how that Isaac story is a picture of what the Father will do for us. Today I want to look at another significant person, and it's Moses. Now, if you're my age and grew up watching the Ten Commandments, you keep hearing Charlton Heston's voice. Try not to do that. Um, uh, but, but Moses is, apart from Abraham, the most significant person in all the Old Testament. He's phenomenally significant. But, but he came in the context of horrible circumstances. Let's go back. You know, Abraham has Isaac, then Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons that grow up. And his favorite one is the youngest, Joseph. No, not the youngest. Benjamin's the youngest. But next, anyway, Joseph's his favorite. And his brothers didn't like it that he was favorite, and he bragged about being the favorite. So they did something that generally is frowned upon, they sold him. And, and uh, a group of Midianites were coming through, and they bought Joseph as to be a slave and took him to Egypt. And, and he starts out uh, as a slave, and then Potiphar's wife makes accusations against him. He gets thrown in jail, and, and, and then God mightily uses Joseph through interpretation of dreams to, rise, to raise him up to be the second most powerful person in the greatest empire of its day, Egypt. Pharaoh gives to him chief operating officer of the nation. And, and things go pretty well for about 400 years. The nation of Israel grows, they expand, they become very significant. But the passage we read today, suddenly things have taken a pretty harsh turn. Because Pharaoh wakes up and says, there are a lot of them. And they're not us. And if we ever get in a war, who knows they won't turn against us. So I've got an idea, Pharaoh said. Let's make their lives horrible. And God allows Pharaoh to so enslave the nation of Israel that they become a picture of what oppression looks like. The nation of Israel is forced to um, 
live out their lives in horrible servitude. But that's not bad enough. In the story we picked up today, Pharaoh says, there are so many of them, I'm going to wipe them out. So he instructs apparently two heads of all the birth mothers for the nation of Israel, if it's a boy, well, when you go out in the backyard and have your babies, women, with your birth stool, men, don't recommend that. Don't, don't recommend that. But when, when she goes out and, and has her baby and you help deliver that baby, if it's a boy, throw it in the Nile River. It's kind of ironic if you fast forward through the story, how will God force Pharaoh to let go of the Israelites? God will take the firstborn of all of his children. Um, and so these two heads of the birth mother union apparently choose not to obey, but instead save the children. And then these two Levite, this Levite couple have a baby, and they choose to resist. And they hide the baby for three months. And then you know the story. They, they make a basket. Interesting, the Hebrew word is the same one used of Noah's ark. It's only used here and in the description of Noah. They built a little ark for Moses. And they put him in the Nile River and they wait. So it's, it's fascinating what God does. Look with me at, if you're looking in the Bible, chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him an ark or a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds for the riverbank. And his sister who we'll get to know as Miriam, stood at the distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Okay, what are the odds? Really? Um if you took statistics and ever tried to figure out the odds for something, this has got to be a lot of decimals, right? Uh, This one family has a son and decides to resist the commands of the government. And their solution is, because they have nothing else they know to do, is put their three-month-old son in a little ark and put him in the river. And God sends Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, uh, the most powerful empire in the world to that date. His daughter goes with her attendants and hears crying. And she sends her attendants to go get the basket and they look and Pharaoh's daughter said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about the way God works, he always waits, often waits till things look absolutely bleak. So that when the solution comes, we can't take credit for it. Right? I mean, there is no way anybody can take credit for God's deliverance through Moses. I mean, because what are the odds? Pharaoh's daughter happens. He wasn't going to live long in that basket. Let's be honest. Because, again, he's a baby. They don't do anything. And, and yet, 
God sends Pharaoh's daughter from the most powerful family that existed in the world to that date, and she chooses to adopt the child. And then, just to keep the miracles going, if you pick up with me, then his sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, her mother, his his mother, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for him, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because I drew him out of the water. Just to keep the circumstances even more unbelievable, Miriam was waiting, and Miriam has the boldness to go to Pharaoh's daughter and said, somebody's going to nurse this baby. Would you like me to find a Hebrew woman? And Pharaoh's daughter says, sure, and I'll pay him. So this Jewish woman is paid by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse her own son. God's provision's crazy. And by the way, in the ancient Near East, nursing went on till three years old. This was not a quick thing. So that Moses grew up in a home surrounded by the Jewish custom, uh, the Israelite customs and was loved by his own mom and dad. And when he was finally weaned, uh, uh, his mother brings the son because it's been expected of her to Pharaoh's daughter and she takes him on as his own, as her own son. Crazy. And we know from scripture that Moses is given every opportunity at the greatest education ever known in its, to its day. In fact, it's, uh, historians and scientists still debate how they built the pyramids because they didn't have caterpillar equipment at that point in time. And I said, last time I said that at my old church, uh, uh, attorney who, uh, who's a genius at physics walked up to me and said, well, I know how they did it. And I thought, okay, call Biblical Archaeology Review and tell them, please. Um, but the, these were these were brilliant people, and Moses got the best they had to offer. He grew up as the prince. So God takes this baby who has no significance in the nation of Egypt, the empire. He's just one of the slave's children. And God makes him one that could someday be king. Kind of reminds you of the baby that was born in Bethlehem to nobody parents whom God intended he would one day be king. So the story picks up that, as I said, God has chosen him. Then in verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, by the way, tradition says Moses, the first 40 years of his life, Moses lived with Pharaoh uh, in the Pharaoh's court. Uh, Tradition says he actually led the army in battles Uh, against invaders against Egypt, but he had a career of some significance. The second 40 years of Moses' life, he spends in the wilderness. We'll get to that. And it's only the last 40 years of Moses' life that he has the ministry that God has called him to. So some of us older people, we're still waiting, right? He started at 80. Um, I'm hoping I'll be alive then. Anyway, now, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his special, to his people, and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. 
Notice that now Moses is identifying with the Israelites. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why did you strike your companion? And the Hebrew answered him, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Well, actually, Pharaoh's daughter, but, you know. Um, Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses murders an Egyptian in protection of an Israelite, and when Pharaoh hears, Moses realizes his life is in danger. And he runs to the land of Midian. Ironically, the very people, descendants of Abraham, who had sold Joseph into uh, slavery in, in Egypt in the first place. And if you read the story, he sits by a well, and a cute girl comes up, and he helps her, and her dad says, why don't you bring, her, bring him home and marry him? And so they do, and um, he, he spends the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd, following sheep. Oh, boy. Ironically, in the land where he will lead Israel in the wilderness wanderings, it's as if God knew what was going to happen and was preparing Moses for it, one would think. Possibly. Um, So he goes from the height of being incredibly significant in, in the throne room of Egypt to being a lowly shepherd and an outcast in the land of Midian. And it's pretty hopeless again, isn't it? But the story picks up. The story picks up. In chapter 3, no, let me read one other. The very end of chapter 2, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of the slavery and cried out for help. Their cry from rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel. I love the next phrase. And God knew. You ever wonder if he knows? Have you ever hit those dark periods when you really wonder if he notices you? If you haven't, you will. Some have called it the dark night of the soul. It's that time when the circumstances seem to deny his existence. And your experiences seem to deny his love. And you wonder. And you pray. The nation of Israel uh, went through this period for 40 years, minimum, and they prayed. But God knew. And, and the timing of God's work is one of the mysteries that we will never understand short of being with him in glory. And I'm not sure we'll understand then, in all honesty. Every once in a while someone says, well, I'll understand it while I'm in heaven. And I think, no, God is infinite. I'm finite. I think he's going to know a lot of things that I'm going to say, Lord, I don't get it because I, my little peanut brain can't process this stuff. But when we're in his presence, we'll feel his love so significantly those questions will go away. But here's the circumstance where the, the nation of Israel is beginning to wonder, God, really? 
the New Testament says it was 430 years total that they were in Egypt. And yes, they grew. Some believe there were as many as 3 million that Moses would leave out of the wilderness when he finally led the people. But while their numbers increased, their circumstances steadily declined. They went from being the heroes because of Joseph's work to by the time they were left, they were the ultimate oppressed and outcast and, and their own sons being murdered. But God knew. And God chose to send a baby that would float around in a basket. And then he would use circumstances that are almost too incredible to believe to rescue his people. So in chapter 3 it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near me. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Uh, Moses still had that inherent understanding that he had picked up somewhere, that the presence of God is not a place where we stand and stare. The presence of God is a place where we look down or fall on our face because of his beauty and his majesty and his holiness. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out of this land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Delactites, Delagmites. And now behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said, say what? Who am I? Isn't it interesting? Forty years earlier, he would have said, do you know who I am? After 40 years of discipleship with sheep, he says, who am I? Who am I that I should bring the people out, that I should go to Pharaoh? And he said, but I will be, the Lord said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. See, Mount Horeb is also known by another now, Mount Sinai. And that would be where God would establish what we call the Mosaic Covenant, because God would give Moses the law 
that would define the nation of Israel. Two things define Israel. Circumcision, which goes back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. It's a sign of the covenant, a demonstration of a family connection of the, family, the covenant people. But the other thing that defines the nation of Israel is the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses on, on Mount Sinai. And some of those circumstances are really visible, like the Sabbath day, one of the t- big ten. Don't work on Saturdays, uh, Friday night to Saturday night. Why? Because it demonstrates that you believe it's not your work that provides for you. It's God who provides. So you can take a day off and know you'll be fed. And then every seventh year, you take off and allow the land to re the Sabbath year. And then every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, when debts are forgiven and slaves are free. Much less all the commands about how sex is viewed in your society, how you eat and and how you deal deal with the truth. The Mosaic law created this worldview that so defined the nation of Israel that it became, in many Jews' minds, the definition of who they were to a point where they actually, in the time of Jesus, had forgotten God. It was all about the law. But Moses is viewed with remarkable significance. Why? Because one, God will use him to give the law and a covenant that will define the nation of Israel until the coming of Jesus. And God will use Moses to deliver the nation of Israel from slavery and oppression, the likes of which the world had never known. So according to God's command, Moses walks into Pharaoh's court, and remember, the previous Pharaoh wanted him dead, and said, hey, dude, uh, God sent me. I want to take all my people with me. And Pharaoh said, say what? Right? And and they they go back and forth, and Pharaoh refuses to obey, and so God sends ten plagues, the last of which is the taking of the firstborn, I believe in retribution for the taking of the male sons to demonstrate that God will not be trifled with by any world government. By the way, this every once in a while I'll give you something free. It's not included in the text. Um, we get way too worried about governments. We get way too worried about politics. I mean, it matters. I care. I care deeply. I vote. I won't tell you how I voted because you might not speak to me afterwards. But, but I care, right? But at the end of the day, God is in control. At the end of the day, no government will ever stand before God and win. And Pharaoh was the most powerful man probably that had existed in the world to the point of this time. And Moses, because he's sent by God, walks in and says, hey, dude, I'm taking my people and we're going to go. And Pharaoh says, no. And he says, oh, yeah, like boys do. And Pharaoh said, yeah, I'm not going to let you. And so Moses takes the people, and they go to the Red Sea, and God parts the ocean, and they lead the nation of Israel through on dry land. And then Pharaoh follows him with all of his chariots, and God says, watch this, opens the spigot, floods them all. You have floating Egyptians all down the Red Sea, and the nation of Israel is freed. Because God never forgets his people. God made a promise to Abraham that he, he would never forget his people. And when the circumstances looked as if God had forgotten them, God raised up a baby 
from a nobody family in horrible circumstances and provided for him to have the greatest education known at that time, 40 years of disciple training following sheep, so the next 40 years he would lead the sheep of Israel before they entered the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy says this about Moses. During... No, that's a wrong passage. I got ahead of... Deuteronomy 34.9, Joshua replaced Moses, and it says... Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hand on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, because the Lord knew him face to face. Wow, what a statement. Because we know at Mount Sinai, when he received the law, God said, I'm going to let you see me, but I'm going to have to hide your face in the cleft of a rock. Remember that old hymn? That's what it's talking about. And, and I will pass by you and you'll see my back, whatever that means. But he says, no prophet has ever been like Moses because he saw Yahweh, the Lord, face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. There has never been another Moses, it says. And the New Testament speaks to his significance as well. John chapter 1. Remember John 1? It's John's theological version of the Christmas story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, i.e. the revelation of God, was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And the light, He, he was the light. That was the true light, which shines into the world, and the light shined in darkness. The darkness didn't understand it. But then He goes on to say in verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Our founding document as a nation was given through Moses. Genesis through Deuteronomy was given through Moses. But grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Moses is elevated here to the, to the in some ways, the one who prefigures the role of Jesus in giving the definition of what it is to follow God. Now, Romans when it describes the gospel, will make it very, very clear that no one was ever made saved by obedience to the law. It's always been based on faith. Hear me. However, the, in the ancient, in the Old Testament, you lived out that obedience by living out the law. And, and John says, you know, law was given through Moses, but Jesus brought grace and, grace, shoot, grace and truth. Easy for me to say. Chapter 5, verse 45 of John. Do not think, Jesus says, that I will accuse you to the Father. There is no one who accuses you. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. In other words, the Jews said, we believe in Moses because we follow the law. And he says, no, Moses accuses you because you can't keep the law. And then Jesus says something that's remarkable. If you believe Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus says, if you really read those first five books well, they point to me. 
Then finally, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast at our confidence and boasting in our hope. Another baby. Another baby in, born of an insignificant family. About another baby whose story is a head-scratcher because there are circumstances which are almost not believable. Another baby who's an illustration that what God wants to work to redeem things in our world, God works through that which seems powerless to show us his power. That which has no glory to show us his glory. And Moses would be the one who set the stage for Jesus in, in defining what obedience, the standard of obedience that was called for by God, which reminded all of us that we can never live up to God's standard. So that when Jesus came and demonstrated that he alone could keep that standard, and so he pays the price for you and me, it makes sense because we've read about Moses. And just as Moses delivered the nation of Israel from the oppression of slavery, Jesus came, another baby, to deliver us from the oppression of our sin. And he made the perfect sacrifice. And on this season, we think about him as a baby. But we dare not forget that God uses what appears to be weak to break the strength of the powerful. God uses what appears to be helpless to bring help to his people. And that baby, this baby, is a demonstration of his love like no other baby ever born. Let's pray. Father, we confess that Christmas is old hat. We know the story. We sing about it. We've acted in it, we've dreamed of it, and we look forward to it, but maybe sometimes we neglect it because we forget that this just isn't a baby, but it is the movement of your hand through history to bring about redemption and freedom for all who trust in him. Thank you, Father, that you never forget us and you never will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.